There we go. If everyone uh, would mute yourselves. Great. Okay. All right. I, I'm grateful for you, will, for you all joining uh, today. And uh, the Torah portion is called Parshat Emor. It's Leviticus chapter 21 through part of 24, or it's really all through 24. And uh, let's say a blessing for Torah study. Baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, for God. Your presence fills the universe. You make us holy with your mitzvot and have commanded us to engage in words of Torah. So, I'm going to go pretty broad today, not drill down into a particular verse. Yes, as Joan says, la'asok b'divrei Torah. La'asok means to engage, but in Hebrew, it sounds, in English, it sounds, let us soak in the Torah, soak us in the Torah. Very nice. Okay, so I'm going to ramble a little bit probably, but with your assistance, we'll hone in on where I'm, my brain is sort of like occupied and in, in, involved. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is preoccupied as is the entire Torah, but especially Leviticus with this idea of how to maintain a state of holiness. And in Exodus, when we're standing at Mount Sinai, God says, you shall be to me a nation of priests and a holy people. So even though Leviticus is called Leviticus in English because it's preoccupied with the work of the Levites, it's the, uh, the clan that is in charge of the holy sanctuary, and then more specifically, the Kohanim, the families of the Levites who are the priests. Kohen means priest. Uh, you shall be a mamlechet kohanim, a nation of priests and a holy people. So even though these chapters are preoccupied with the precinct of holiness, where the kohanim, the priests are occupied, it's also clear from the Torah that um, there are, as we've discussed many times, nesting, inter, uh, interlaced, nesting realms of holiness, not just the holiness where the priests operate, but the holiness of the human sphere and the holiness of the universe. And that all of us are metaphorically, as Jews, expected to manifest this holiness, become aware of it, live it inside, outside, everywhere, so that we become a nation of Kohanim and a holy people. So there isn't really one precinct that is exclusively holy because it says over and over in the Torah, holy, holy, holy is the creator of the heavenly hosts. The whole earth overflows with glory, with divine glory. So, um, so the author I was quoting last week, Ellen Davis in her book about an agrarian reading of the Bible, Said, defines it this way, only by constant mindfulness of the holy in its varying intensities can this people, the Jewish people, live fittingly on the land with which it is entrusted. I really like that term, 
constant mindfulness of the holy in its varying intensities. I think that's a really lovely description. Um, that because those intensities are varying, but the holiness is always um, there in potential to be manifested. And so I think what I wanna do first with you, and I always welcome your interruptions or comments, is we all know Gail Albert, and most of us are familiar with her book. Gail wrote a commentary on each week's Torah portion, Mending the Heart, Tending the Soul. And um, I was reading her introduction to the book of Leviticus, and I thought it was so crystal clear and crisp in its language that I wanted to read some of it to you. Before I do, I just want to explain what's going on in this Parsha and more. The, and in terms of the varying intensities of holiness as a phrase in the back of our minds. The first chapter, of, remember, Emor comes right after Kedoshim. Kedoshim described how we should be holy by the way we treat one another in the ethical realm and the way we maintain ourselves in the ritual realm. That's for all of us. Remember, Kedoshim applies to the entire people. In the very next chapter, the Torah, in this week's portion, the Torah drills down a little, or that's not the right word, brings in its focus from a wider focus, goes now it like zooms in. And the first chapter is all about the way that the Kohanim, the priests, need to maintain an additional sort of uh, level of holiness in order to serve in the, in, in the uh, temple precinct. And then the next bit describes how the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, has to raise themselves up into a more a higher level of uh, clarity of purpose and holiness because they're serving in the inner sanctum. And then chapter 22 then discusses how the offerings that Israelites bring to that sacred, to that uh, holy sanctuary have to be without blemish. They have to be, the, the offerings all have to be without blemish in a way that's described physically as an animal that's not, uh, that's not deformed um, so that uh, that symbolizes that level of holiness and wholeness that they bring to the sanctuary. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 23, it changes gears completely. And there's a description of how holy times, holy moments in the year, the holidays, the holy days need to be marked. And that happens in chapter 23. So there are all these different realms of holiness. And again, before I read from Gail, some of you may know this, but there is, in Jewish spiritual lingo, a saying, not a saying, a uh, conceptual framework with the words, olam, zman, I mean, olam, um, uh, shana, and nefesh. Olam, shana, Nefesh. Olam means the physical realm, the realm of space. Olam. Shana refers to time, the realm of time and the passing of time. And nefesh refers to the self, the soul, the spirit, consciousness. And this triad 
is used in Jewish spiritual teachings to represent the different levels of experience in which we need to manifest holiness. In the realm of space, physical realm, that would be in our Torah portion, that would be the portable sanctuary, the Mishkan, the place where we bring our offering. In terms of, and that's what we talk about in the first chapter of this, two chapters of this portion. Shana refers to time and how we bring a sense of holiness into the passage of time. And that represents chapter 23, which gives the whole cycle of holy times that we mark in order to be, to, I'm gonna quote Ellen Davis again, only by constant mindfulness of the holy in its varying intensities can we fulfill our purpose as human beings. Then the third realm, nefesh, is um, the self. And that regard is the spiritual realm, not the physical, not the temporal, but the physical. These are of course a schematic, they're all intertwined, they're all inseparable. But for our purposes of thinking in these different categories, I find it very useful. And so the nefesh, the spiritual realm, is the realm in which each of us is the high priest. This is not a, um, just a modern or late concept in Judaism. This goes all the way back that in the spiritual realm, each of us needs to manifest the awareness of the holy in our own interior awareness. So this is not an ethical category. This is an experience of the numinous, of the one in ourselves so that we can be a dwelling place for the, for the divine. So we want God's presence to be able to dwell in space, in our experience of time, and on our experience of self. There's no way to wrap this up with a bow, but it's such a useful. Um, oh, Sylvia asked what the word for holy time. Holy time is, is called Mikra Kodesh. Um, holidays are known as Mikra E Kodesh, meaning times that are declared as holy. Um, the word for time in Hebrew is Zman. But in this case, we use the word shana for the, which also means a year, right? The reason we have this acronym is because it's an acronym. Olam with an ayin is space. Shana with a shin is time. And nun, nefesh, is spiritual and self. Together, they spell the word ashan, ayin, shin, nun, which means smoke. Now, here's why. Because from this verse at Mount Sinai, the har Sinai ashan kulo. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke. Mipnei hasher yarad alav Adonai because the presence of yud heh vav -He had descended upon it. That becomes the text from which all this, this acronym comes from. It's not just any smoke, right? It's the Mount Sinai smoke when the cloud, the ashan comes down on the mountaintop and we, um, um, I'm thinking of the word commune with it. For we're also all Moses, 
We're also all each the high priest, all of us. I find that, again, some of us are familiar with this acronym, but I find it really useful. Um, another way, well, let me get to that in a little while. Um, beautiful. Let me turn now to Gail's language about this and read you a bit, okay? The third book of the Torah is known in English as Leviticus. Oh, let me see the comment there. Could we say Olam Mishkan is Klal, congregating, Shana is holiday cycle, and Nefesh is private meditation? Uh, yes, you can go that way, because this is a wide open triad. Um, we're, it's just trying to encompass the realms of human activity and experience so that we can invest any, and so take it and run with it, yes. Yeah, um, uh, okay, so now I'll read. The third book of the Torah is known in English as Leviticus, a name which emphasizes its presentation of the rituals and laws of the Levite priests. But the Hebrew name for Leviticus is Vayikra, taken from the opening sentence, and God called. I prefer using the Hebrew name because it takes us directly to the meaning we will be exploring, our relationship with the ever-present I am that I am. Okay, that's beautiful right there. The Hebrew name of this book is Oh, there you are, Gail. The Hebrew name of the... So you jump in any time, please. I'm quoting you constantly today. I mean it. Unmute yourself right now and just jump in whenever you want. I'm just very grateful. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm grateful and to Levitic, you. You know, Bayekra is my favorite book, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, next paragraph. Exodus set the scene for Bayekra as the Israelites built and completed the sanctuary for the divine to dwell, not only amidst the community, but within the heart of each person, right? Because again, from the earliest commentaries, when it says in Exodus chapter 25, make me a mikdash, a sanctuary, a place of holiness, so that I might dwell in your midst. From the earliest commentaries, in your midst can also be translated as within you. So there's an understanding from the earliest that, as I mentioned, since we're also instructed at Mount Sinai to become a nation of priests, that while there is a spatial aspect to this, there is also continuously a spiritual internal aspect to this. That's why spatial olam and nefesh, spiritual, do not contradict each other. They nest in each other. And then of course, in time, uh, through the holy days and through marking the Sabbaths and holy times, we want to retain our mindfulness in order that we might perceive God dwelling in our midst. Vayikra now continues the narrative as God remains a daily presence, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Fundamentally beyond human comprehension and yet somehow in the midst of the tribes clustered at the foot of Mount Sinai and somehow present with us today. I'm quoting Gail. What does it really mean, Vayikra asks? to be in covenant with this divine force? What does it mean to actually have God in one's encampment, visibly present in one's life on a daily basis? And here's, here's Gail, this is a great phrase. How do we behave when yud he vav is living next door? How do we act toward each other 
if God is present? How do we act toward that awesome beingness? Turning to our inner experience, how does it feel to have full consciousness that yod heh vav -He is here and now within us when divine power inspires both love and awestruck terror? Vayikra addresses a question that goes far deeper than following the ethics of the Ten Commandments, for it goes beyond rules of behavior to internal spiritual change as we each come to have direct experience of the mystery we call God. In exploring the nature of our relationship with God, whatever that word means to us, Vayikra provides instructions for self-transformation so that each of us can become a holy sanctuary, a mishkan, living in conscious communion with the divine. As such, Vayikra can be read as the most mystical and rewarding of the five books of the Torah. But Vayikra is also the most difficult book of the Pentateuch to understand and on its surface reading, probably the dullest. While it is a profound treatise on the meaning of holiness, its surface structure rises out of the midst, mists of prehistory, and it is far less evocative to our modern consciousness than the mythic tales of Genesis or Exodus. Its perspective is so old, in fact, that it was already ancient and its deeper meaning unclear by the time of the rabbis who created the tradition of Torah interpretation during the Roman Empire. Vayikra has almost no stories, seems a jumble of ethical and cultic rules, and spends much of its text on ritual practices that at the literal level seem primitive, offensive, or at best incomprehensible. Since we don't feel comfortable completely discarding the text, we tend to ignore what we don't understand or agree with. In particular, we are likely to concentrate on the ethical command. But while we may feel that ritual and biology are irrelevant to holiness, Vayikra does not. And so if we look only at ethical rules, we are missing much of the meaning and intent of the total book. In Vayikra's own understanding of deep spiritual work, ritual and ethical practices are inseparable in bringing us closer to or further from the holiness of God at every moment. In fact, ritual and ethics are intermingled in the text because they are both subsumed into another category entirely. Pravayikra is embedded in a worldview in which every aspect of life, including certain aspects of human biology, falls on a simple continuum that ranges from holy and pure at one end to neutral in the middle to profane and impure at the other end. In a general way, and this is a very illuminating point, Humans live in the middle realm with most of what we do in daily life being neither holy nor impure, but somehow neutral. But the divine is creator of all parts of the continuum. The Torah is very clear. There is no place where God's energy isn't because there is only one God, one source of power, God is the holy force that is both creative and destructive. On one end of the continuum, the divine presence creates all life and sustains it moment by moment. At the other end, the divine presence also creates the awesome earthquake, and fire and death. And mere humans cannot lightly trespass in either 
of these realms of power. In fact, yod Vafe's realm of death and destruction is essentially forbidden to humans in its entirety. When you read the Leviticus and other books of the Bible, it says no calling up of spirits and no worship of the dead is allowed. To enter that lower realm is to die oneself. Even to come near this realm, even to handle a dead body is to become impure. Rituals are needed then to cleanse us, to help us become neutral again. And at the symbolic level, we are told to practice love rather than destruction. In this week's portion, the priests, while, hum while regular folks dwell in that middle space between the infinite light and the darkness, the priestly caste is understood to operate closer to the light. And so their rules for the contact, contacting death are much stricter than the regular Israelites. The regular Israelites contact death, they go through a ritual of cleansing. In our portion in Emor, the Kohanim, the priests, who encounter are not allowed to encounter a dead body unless it is an immediate family member. The high priest is not allowed to even contact, have any contact with the dead. So if you knew any, if you grew up with the last name Cohen, knowing you were from that group or know someone, they would say, I can't go to the cemetery. I'll see you at the house following this ancient practice of contact with the dead, which we learn about in this portion. Um, okay. But we are also at risk if we cross the boundary without adequate preparation between our human realm and the realm of God's perfection not just the realm of the dead, but the realm of the, of, of, of the infinite creative power. Only the high priest can enter the innermost chamber of the sanctuary, only once per year as commanded by the divine, and only after many rites of purification. Even the middle chamber is limited to those specially prepared and named by the divine. And failure to observe necessary ritual may cause death. Indeed, Aaron's sons die for just such a violation of ritual. Even the inadvertent coming into contact with a holy object will create a violation of boundaries that requires ritual undoing. Uh, Joan and Naomi, I see your comments. I'll get to them after uh, I read a bit more. We are asked to purify ourselves so that we can safely approach God and open our hearts to Yudhevave's presence in our lives, committing ourselves to becoming conduits for God's compassion and love. For the divine is calling us to come near. Vayikra. The divine is calling to us to come near so that God can manifest through us in the middle realm in which we dwell, through the moral sphere that belongs specifically to humanity. Gail, I think I, I, I'm so grateful for that, that, that wording. Um, there is a realm beyond the moral. The moral is the consciousness that we humans bring to right and wrong in our daily lives. There is also the realm that some of us have experienced of pure love, which transcends moral decision-making, the light. And there is also the realm of utter destructive power, which has no morality attached to it. It just is, right? So that's how I understand what Gail is saying here. Our job as humans, the task of the Torah, is to infuse this middle realm in which we dwell 
the moral sphere with the sense of the nearness of God. I'll keep going. Okay, there's a few more paragraphs. In straightforward language, Vayikra asks us to be holy like yod heh by emulating divine compassion in our own behavior in the world in which we live. It then sets forth a wide range of ethical and ritual practices that will lead us to this goal. At the core of the book is the impossibly general and demanding phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, which is followed soon after by an even more extraordinary charge to love the stranger as yourself, as we read last week. Despite the fact that we so often fail as a species to manage even acts of simple decency, Vayikra raises the stakes far higher. For Vayikra is not asking us to merely improve the way we behave. We are being asked instead to become holy, to imitate the divine by treating others with loving kindness and compassion because we see them through the lens of God's love and compassion for us. In Jewish tradition, this is the central teaching of Torah as it is in so many other spiritual traditions. Thus, a frequently quoted statement by Rabbi Hillel in the first century says, all the rest is commentary. Compassion is being demanded with full awareness of inevitable human fallibility. And so Vayikra is filled with rules for both ritual and ethical behavior that will remove our impurities and increase our holiness. You shall be holy because I am holy, says Yudhevave again and again, not in punishment, but as a statement of fact. If we are going to approach God to reach for connection with Yudhevave, with divine glory and power, then we ourselves, we must be holy ourselves or we will be destroyed. God's power will be too much for us to contain. We tend to find Vayikra incomprehensible because it espouses a worldview about ritual, purity, and holiness that is strange to us. But the text does not seem at all, quote, primitive once we begin to understand its deep meaning. As soon as we interpret the rules and rituals metaphorically, as we will while, while exploring each chapter, this scale's introduction, we can see that they speak to the very nature of the divine as it permeates the universe. God is the source of life and death, and we are restricted to the realm of life. If we approach God too closely or without adequate purification, we ourselves become endangered and may even be destroyed. Thus, we must be ritually cleansed. In this metaphoric reading, we are not being asked to follow the literal and detailed rules by Eucharist's fourth. Instead, we are being asked to bring into the human sphere those qualities of God that represent different components of the loving life force. These are such components as wholeness, integrity, balance, which are all aspects of the Hebrew word shalom, even perfection, as well as the qualities of mercy, compassion, and discernment. The aspects of divine holiness that we can approach are restricted to the middle realm neither above nor below. Perhaps a hint of such restriction to the middle realm comes into play in Genesis after Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge and are exiled from Eden before they can also eat of the tree of life and become immortal. And so Vayikra is struggling to making us holy in this world where we exist in physical form firmly placed in the middle realm of earthly life, 
asked to somehow imbue it with perfection. And this despite full awareness of our fundamental imperfectibility. I have to read your last line again. Vayikra is struggling with making us holy in this world where we exist in physical form, firmly placed in the middle realm of earthly life, asked to somehow imbue it with perfection. And this, despite full awareness of our fundamental imperfectibility. Gail, isn't that good writing? You know, it's been a while since I wrote it. So it was, yeah, because I didn't, no sense it was mine. <laughs> I know, I know. I started reading it today and I said, wow, you, you just, that is right. really, really good. Thank you. Um, Gail is talking, Gail, are you talking, Marcia says, Gail, are you talking about our striving for perfection and then and then Joan wrote, our per fundamental imperfectibility, is that dampening our sense of possibility? Marcia and Joan, your reactions are perfect because what Gail is explaining is that we live in a fundamental paradox. Here in the middle realm, there may be, there are, there are levels of awareness where the paradoxes disappear, but the place where, our, where the, all the action is, is fundamentally paradoxical and cannot be reduced beyond that. And that is that we have a sense of the ability for, of the, we can conceive perfection and yet we are inevitably flawed. Go ahead, Gail. Just that it, it seems, you know, the Torah ends with us at the edge of the promised land. We never get to the place we never get to nirvana. We never get to the place of perfection. We just don't. And it was a deliberate choice to make, to stop the Torah there. Mm -hmm. you know? That's the statement. We're, it's, we're, we're, it's just, we, we just can't get there, but we can get closer and closer. It's sort of like that. Right. Half like the, what's the... What? Turtle, the turtle in the whatever. The, the halfway there. there and halfway yeah, and right, halfway. Exactly. But yeah. we never... We never actually will attain that in this life. Right. The Torah is aware of and fully acknowledges that truth and still demands that we strive for holiness. And as individuals, we can have moments where we are really in that place of really being a channel, really being mm -hmm. with the divine. And that too doesn't last for at least unless you're maybe the Dalai Lama, you know. But. No, he would be the first to say he has bad days. Right. right. Um, that's why I trust him. That's <laughs> true. Um, so going back to our original triad of Olam, Shana, and Nefesh, space, time, and self. Um, uh, I forgot. I forgot exactly what I was going to say. But in each of those realms, Judaism asks us to strive for that awareness, which is an awareness that goes beyond um, a moral calculation of what's right and wrong, and extends towards the realm that's that's non-dual, that doesn't have. Here in the middle, we have to be figuring this out all the time. But if we can contain, contain within us the awareness of the great light while we're doing it, then, then holiness, holiness is not a moral category in that sense. Morality is a subset of holiness, not the other way around. Uh, now I'm gonna read a few of these wonderful comments. So I'm going back up. Um, How does this teaching, okay, so Joan has been talking about a pendulum, a circle, no, a spiral. Well, isn't it fascinating to think about how one would visualize time, space, and self as, you know, time is always passing. We're always moving through space. 
And yet, so yeah, I think a spiral is a lovely image. I, I like that very much. Naomi said, how does this teaching tie into Hever Kaddisha and Jewish ritual? Um, I saw that before and I knew what I was saying right at that moment. Um, Naomi, do you remember what it was in reference to? I can win my way there. Yeah, we were talking, you were talking about um, the impurity of touching a dead body and being- Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So the, again, in this Jewish way where we're all priests, even though there is a hierarchy and a caste of priests, that those are both true. Um, those of us who participated in the Tahara ceremony where we purify the dead body and cleanse it in order so that it might go be one with the light, with God, all the rituals associated with it, it's, there's, a, there's a text, a liturgy. And the liturgy is the description of how the high priest was prepared to enter the Holy of Holies. So every, every person who has passed, who is being, who is being um, uh, uh, cleansed with this ritual, purified, is, is with the language that's used is becoming the high priest who is about to enter the Holy of Holies. And, and what about for those of us performing Tahara? And oh, and you're in contact with the dead. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So um, if we were going to be uh, fully observant in this way, we would go to the mikvah afterwards because we have touched the realm of death. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to, um, oh, yes, I agree. Uh, as Ellen Weaver said, it's actually wonderfully compassionate to know we cannot be perfect as humans and to be in the flow of divine holiness as often as possible. Well said. David Kagan wrote. And as Ellen said, although it is impossible for us to perfect ourselves from another perspective, this is a great blessing because it allows the creation to go on and on to our children and children's children, each having the opportunity to complete themselves anew. Beautifully said. And as Marcia says, an imperfection is not unholy. That's right. Imperfection is just, neutral is a good word, um, Gail. It's the state of our being of, from which we are always trying to lift up our consciousness. Um, yes. Sylvia said, one of my favorite books is The Spirituality of Imperfection. Uh, it's a story telling about the history of AA and has quotes from religions of God's, many religions of God's love in us, of us for our imperfection. Yeah. There's a great phrase, and I don't remember where it came from, uh, the God of second chances. Um, that uh, is it, maybe it comes from AA, I, I don't know. Um, and I was thinking how the Jewish God, even though, as we've gone over many times, um, Christianity wanted to paint us as the opposite of anything that involved forgiveness. Um, our God is the God of 33rd chances, you know, because every year on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we come back and say, forgive us. And God says, I have forgiven. And then we do it again. It's beautiful. It's, it's definitely the striving, the journey and not the arrival, you know, as, as Gail said, our Torah is all about our journey, not about our arrival. We never get there. We go back and read it again the next year. It's all a journey. Um, to David's point above, if we reach perfection, it's sort of an end. Yes. What is that stasis? What is it? Unattainable perfection. Is this like if you think you are a tzaddik, you are definitely not a tzaddik? Okay, everybody knows that. A tzaddik is a righteous person. Yes. If you think you're a tzaddik, you're definitely not a tzaddik. Um, that would, um, it's unattainable. You know, Rabbi, there are, there's a tribe called the Serastians. They make beautiful carpets. 
but they always make an imperfection because only God would make a perfect carpet. <laughs> perfect. And Abigail says, a poet said, man's perfection lies in his perfectibility. Um, and billboard for a zipper company seen on the 59th Street Bridge when I was a kid. Perfection is no accident. What do you, is that from that um, servo, servo zipper store that I used to see from Shea Stadium? Is that the, the tower? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh-huh, your mom loved that, that's wonderful. I'm glad, good to remember your mom. Abigail's mom loved that and repeated it often and laughed. Beautiful. Good. So, uh, once again, I just want to acknowledge Gail for with, with such beautiful and economic and clear language. You made my day, Gail. Thank you. Thank you. Could you just repeat the name of it? Of course. Mending the heart, tending the soul, directions to the garden within, and it's on Amazon. It's available. Yep. Recommended. I have my hard cover that I kept. <laughs> Thank you. Good. So Just ordered it. Good. I think, Ellen, I think you'll love it. I, it's, um, yeah, incredible work. Um, so then, here are a couple more thoughts along those lines. There's this, I was studying Zohar with my teacher Malila and in the Zohar, so there's this line in our text today, in our Parsha that says, here I am. It's describing, as I said, the level of holiness. Oh, wait, let me read Marsha's comment. Would you say, Rabbi, that it's not always about striving for perfection, but also about accepting our imperfections or disabilities? Nicely said. Yes, this isn't about striving for perfection. It's about striving for the awareness of God's presence all around us that would then motivate us to want to imitate that experience to be with it to commune with it to connect with it uh so yes striving perfection is definitely not what not the right english phrase precisely um unless it's paired with gail's statement about our imperfectibility so marsh is articulating the paradox beautifully here it's not always about striving for perfection, but also about accepting our imperfections. Yes. And what it's striving for is holiness, is, is feeling that being in communion with the divine, answering the call, coming mm -hmm. closer. And when you, the closer, the more you do that, your behavior also changes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's just what um, happens. Yeah. And hopefully your sense of humor improves too. And, uh, you don't take yourself quite so seriously and all that good stuff that happens. That's why I'm thinking about the Dalai Lama again. And Joan just made a beautiful language point here. The key word in Marsha's comment is striving because the word Yisrael means, and Jacob gets a new name because he has striven, he has wrestled, but also Yisra means to strive with God and with human beings and has prevailed. So yes, the word Yisrael implies this striving and struggle. Disability is different ability, differently abled as we all are, and some with more difficulty indeed. So- Can I just say something? Absolutely, let me just read Ellen's comment. And following our longing can be a softer version of striving. Well said, striving has a, um, um, a, a forcing energy to it. There might be another way to engage 
that is more more forgiving. Uh, um, thank you. Following our longing, who wanted to talk? Some need one, one, think, some need the I, other. Yeah. That. Oh. Um. Yeah. Ellen says some need one, some need the other, and some of us need one or the other at different moments. Right. Right. Beautiful. Go ahead, Abigail. So I was thinking of what you were telling me about um, Likro, the meaning of it, of calling out. Right. And how God... Hold on, hold on, Abigail. So the verb kara, which means to read, Likro means to read, but it also means to call out. That's because nobody read to themselves in the Torah. All, all declamation was oral. And so... Vayikra means to call out. Go ahead. And God called out to the darkness night, and God called out to the light day, and we're being called by our names, and we should live to be who we are. Lovely, lovely. We're being called, but we have to figure yeah. out who we are and, and live up to it. Oh, and God called to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, and God calls to Moses. Yeah, and God calls to each of us. That's why Reb Zalman used to have us chant the Shema. Uh, this was one of his, his he called it Davanology experiments. Um, instead of saying Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, which is the collective, he would have us turn it to each other and say Shema Avigail, you know, so that we were each being addressed. And I think that has something to do with the concept that parents are imbued with a certain level of prophecy when they name their children. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Ellen Weaver, were you gonna add something? No, okay, uh, wonderful. So let me share this beautiful line. So here in the beginning of chapter 21, here, I'll share the screen for a second. We have three minutes, hold on, I'll put the text up. Mm, excuse me. Oh, I know where it went. Just a moment. Okay. Give me a sec. Okay, here's this portion, just a second. Get out of there. Okay. So here's the beginning of the portion which describes the extra levels of holiness and uh, that the priests have to uh, fulfill, which we did not go into detail. They can't marry a divorcee, that's still, some Kohanim still follow that. Their wife has to be a virgin. Everything has to be like all of that stuff. And so here's this verse that says, when the daughter of a priest defiles herself through harlotry, it is her father whom she defiles. She shall be put to the fire. Okay, whoa, right? However, I wanted you to see that verse. And here's how the Zohar, the, the mystical tradition, understands it. The, the daughter of the priest is our soul, the neshama, which has a feminine quality in Jewish mysticism. We are each, we are each, so, um, and the, the, the priest in this, we are the daughter of the priest. We aren't. Our soul is. And the Kohen is God. Right? We are all, as it were, daughter, children, daughters of, our souls are, daughters of the one. And if we lose track of that, if our souls lose track of that, then we are, as it were, defiling the one who made us. That's how the Zohar understands it. And then 
you think about the prayer, Elohai, Nishama Shanatatabi Tehorahi. My God, the soul you have given me is Tehorah, pure. But Tahor, pure, means pure in the sense of able to live in that realm of life. And yet here we are defiling our souls with our behavior. So I really, that's how the Zohar, that's how the mystical tradition understands all this. It's not talking about, for them, it's not talking about the daughter of the priest back in ancient Israel. It's talking about the realm of nefesh, the realm of our internal awareness and how we, we defile our souls when we don't reach for the higher awareness of holiness in our lives. And as it were, because of the classic language of the Torah, it's as if we go um, prostituting ourselves to false gods and we lose our way. We lose track of our soul. Again, I've said this many times and I don't remember who, who I heard it from. We don't exactly know what the soul is, but we know when we've lost it which has become one of my favorite watchwords. The soul is a mystery to us here in this realm of neutrality, this middle, middle, sec, middle area that we dwell in. It's a mystery, just like God's a mystery, and yet we live next door to God, right? We live in this awareness. So we, don't, we can't say exactly what the soul is. We know when we've lost contact with We know when someone feels soulless. We know something that has soul and we know it. And our job, our task is to make a place for the soul, this beautiful, incredible, delicate energy that is in our essence in the world. Just like it says, make a sanctuary for me that I might dwell in your midst. Make a sanctuary for me that I might dwell within you. Make a place where your soul can be at home here in this world. Make a holy space. Mark holy times so that the holy essence within us can find its, can have its like um, mileage markers and lodestones and if I'm going with uh, if I'm going with highways, it's rest areas <laughs> where it can remember to bring holiness, to create that holy space where that precious flower can blossom. Joan said, oh, thank you, Joan. This is what there is to talk about, isn't it? If we remain loyal to this, that striving spiral, our, we, can, our, we can purify our soul to the fire and burn with yearning to reach the most high. Beautiful metaphors. All of this is where we want to use metaphors. That's why Gail's, Gail's language was so helpful to me. And, and Ellen says, and bitocham, make a sanctuary so God can dwell in your midst, means in our midst as well, in our midst as well as the midst of a community. And, none, and those are all happening simultaneously. Okay. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Gail. Sarah, your hand is up. What would you like to say? Well, there were parts of this discussion that reminded me of um, my experience with a knowledge of beyond what I experienced, the Great Pyramid in Egypt. So there are three chambers in that pyramid the lowest chamber, the middle chamber, which is known as the queen's chamber, and the upper chamber, which is the king's chamber. The low chamber, so the thing about the pyramid is, uh, I don't, I'm sure people have heard that planes don't fly over the pyramid because there's like a neutral zone of energy directly above it, right? And the the story about the lowest chamber, um, which I actually have a friend who's been in it and you can't go into it anymore 
because the story is that the energy of the lowest chamber is 100% neutral. And there have been literally spontaneous deaths that have occurred when people have gone into that chamber faced with utter neutrality, utter nothing. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how it relates to what we're talking about, but for some reason for me, it related. Um, it does relate. Yeah. Because it's another way of mapping this human, human experience that the Torah maps in the way we've been describing and Jewish tradition does. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Great. All right, let me end the recording now.